For better or worse, we live in a culture today that is all about acceptance and tolerance. For worse, when it comes to religion, this mindset tells us, or tells the world rather, that all gods are equal. Who are you to say that your God is the only God? And the depravity of man combined with the plethora of choices to try to fill that void is a dangerous situation. Imagine a child who's old enough to know that he doesn't feel well, opening the door to the medicine cabinet and just staring wide-eyed at the various bottles, pills of different sizes, liquids of all different colors. If he doesn't know any better, that child will simply take whatever medication suits him depending on how he feels at that moment, not knowing if it's the right medication or not. He remembers. He doesn't quite like the pink liquid. The purple one kind of tastes like grape, but on the other hand, if he takes a pill, he doesn't need to taste anything at all. But he remembers that the big pills are hard to swallow, but the small pills are not really round and they hurt a little going down. So which one does he take? If he thinks that they will equally all make him feel better, then again, he's just going to take the one that suits his feelings at the time the best. And we know that the problem with this is that the wrong medication will at best do nothing and give him false hope, and at worst, it will kill him. It isn't until someone comes alongside that person, that child, to direct them to the right bottle. This someone has already experienced the same illness and taken the correct medication, is able to read the label and knows the truth, and therefore is now free from that sickness. We as believers are those who know the one true God. We have experienced salvation and now live in the freedom in Christ and freedom from the disease of sin. And we need to come alongside those who are lost, staring at that medicine cabinet while tempted to take the wrong medication that fulfills their emotions and desires, or just walking away altogether, assuming that they're all a sham. We must come alongside them. We must point them to the truth. And the first thing we must do in doing that is to pray, not only on our own time, but also publicly in our church services. And this is where chapter 2 of 1 Timothy comes in, as the Apostle Paul gives us instruction for corporate worship, and specifically, as we will see this morning, as we continue what we saw last week, to pray evangelistically. Last week in verses 1 through 4, we saw the command to pray for the salvation of all men in light of God's desire for all to come to a knowledge of Him. And now Paul continues in verses 5 through 8 to give us reasons for these prayers. Let's read the passage. Knowing the context is that in all of chapter 2, he is giving instruction not for personal life or personal worship, but for public worship for the ordering of church services. Read with me 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-8. through eight. For there is one God and one mediator 
also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Last week, we saw four explanations for public evangelistic prayer. This morning, I want to give you four reasons, the why, four reasons to pray evangelistic prayers. As I mentioned last week, there's a lot of instruction that is for public worship services. Some of it does not translate into our private lives. The praying evangelistically does, but that is secondary. The primary reason he is giving us this instruction is for what we are to do right here on a Sunday morning. But with all prayer, we must do it at home as well for reasons to pray evangelistic prayers. The first reason is the singularity of God. The singularity of God. Let me read for you again verse 5. We're in 1 Timothy 2. He says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The first motivation or reason for evangelistic prayer is that there is only one way to the one God. He starts with the word for, which connects us back to what Paul said in verses 3 and 4. And in those verses, he said this, referring to praying for all people, is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So right off the bat, we are told that Paul is giving us a reason and motivation for praying for all people. And we saw from verses 3 and 4 that Paul is indicating that this praying for the world is ultimately, firstly, for their salvation. The fact that there is only one God is fundamental to our faith. Although the world offers up many gods and goddesses to choose from, the reality is that we know from the Scriptures that there is only one true God. Referencing these idols, these false gods, in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, Paul writes, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, he's talking about the human reasoning and the human offerings, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. As we follow Paul's logic, we see not only that there is only one God, but that this God desires to have a relationship with us. So you take an equation. One God plus that one God's desire for reconciliation equals one way to God. Paul goes on to say, that there is one mediator. We know what a mediator is. It's a go-between. Originally, this was a business term. This was later used to encompass a mediator of any sort. In other words, a person who facilitates a transaction between two parties, thereby helping those two parties to restore peace or enter into a deal or a covenant. 
We use mediators all the time. A real estate agent mediates between the buyer and the seller of the house so they can come to an agreed upon price. A lawyer helps mediate an agreeable settlement between two parties, whether two individuals or two organizations or a combination of them, or between a suspected criminal and the government. A salesperson mediates between the potential buyer and the business or contractor. And when it comes to mediating salvation between God and men, it is Jesus Christ. In fact, Hebrews 8.6 calls him the mediator of a better covenant. Well, what does this all mean for us? Well, first and foremost, it is that we must, as believers, rejoice. We must rejoice that God has shown us this one way and respond, in turn, with our lives. This also means that there are no other intermediaries to God. There's nothing else. Not any other gods, not holy men, not Joseph Smith, not the Virgin Mary, not saints, not priests, not Moses, not our dead family members, not angels, not even Christians. Well, you say not even Christians. Well, what about evangelism? Evangelism is just the recommendation for the real estate agent. We have experienced how good they are. They'll get you a good price. Go to that one. But ultimately, there's only one way to God, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. This also means that if they are not saved through Jesus Christ, if anyone says they are saved but not through Jesus Christ, my friends, they are not saved. If they are not given a ticket to heaven through the mediation of Jesus Christ, their ticket is a counterfeit. They're not getting in. Many years ago when I was in high school and my brother was in college, we took a trip to New York City for two young students. What better way to cap off a trip to the Big Apple than to go to the infamous Madison Square Garden to watch the New York Knicks? This was an afterthought. So we went, and as many of you have seen elsewhere, not even hidden in the alley, at the opening of the alley was a man there saying, tickets, I got tickets. So my brother wanting to show his little brother a fun time and experience New York in its fullest paid an exorbitant amount for those tickets. And so we got in line, excited, got to the ticket taker who was rushing, right? Thousands of people going through. He was, he was stamping and looking, right? At that time, there was no scanning. He got to us, and just as quickly, he said, step to the side, please, next guy, stamp, stamp, stamp. And we're sitting there thinking, what's going on? And eventually, some people came to us, said, can we see your tickets again? And me being the naive high schooler thought, ooh, these are better than we thought. They're going to escort us somewhere. And as you can guess, where they wanted to escort us was outside of the building. <laughs> they said, these are fake. They didn't apologize. They didn't say sorry. They're fake. You're not getting in. It did not matter if we said we thought they were real. It did not matter if we said, but we're really good fans. We're good people. It wouldn't matter how much we paid for them. They're fake tickets. You're not getting in. 
And if your mediator is not Jesus Christ, no matter how passionate you are about your God and your religion and your good deeds, you're holding a counterfeit ticket. And like those two young boys at that time, by the time you figure out it's counterfeit and are at the door, it's too late. We couldn't get in. There are no real tickets to buy. The game was starting. Jesus Christ is the only way. And ultimately, what Paul is saying here is that if there is only one God who has provided only one way to salvation, then those of us who have experienced that salvation should be praying that more come to Him. We are to pray evangelistically because of the singularity of God. If there were many ways to heaven, then it really wouldn't matter so much because they'll stumble upon one of them. But because we know there's only one way, we must pray. But how did Jesus do this? Well, it starts with that little word that Paul uses to describe him in verse 5, the word man. The man, Jesus Christ. He then goes on to say in verse 6 of the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. And this brings us to our second reason to pray evangelistically the salvation of God. How in the world could God who is spirit mediate with man who is flesh? Simple. Make the mediator a man. But how in the world could a holy God mediate with sinful man? Simple. Also make the mediator God. It's genius, really. It is in His humanity that Jesus Christ could carry out the Father's plan of redemption and Christ's own redemptive mission which culminates in His self-sacrifice. And that self-sacrifice could only exist because He took the form of a human being. It is only because He was a human being and God that He could mediate between God and mankind. And as God... Jesus fully took on the nature and attributes of humanity while remaining sinless, thus allowing him to successfully give, and I quote the verse, himself as a ransom for all. After the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that was always intended to be temporary and pointed to a permanent and better sacrifice, Jesus did not come bringing perfectly unblemished animals to sacrifice. He did not come and round up thousands of sinners to face the just requirements of their sin before God. He did not take all of humanity and because of their sin take something away from every individual on earth, a limb or a child as a means of reparations. In fact, He didn't even just give up something He had or part of His being. No. As Paul here and as the rest of the Scriptures attest, he gave himself. He gave everything. We know what that means on the cross, but it is important to go beyond the what, which is the sacrificial death, and understand the why. Here, defined as a ransom for all. 
he gave himself as a ransom for all. A ransom in those days referred to the price paid to release a slave. The grammar of the original Greek for us tells us that an exchange of some sort took place. When it comes to both the basic understanding of a ransom as well as the spiritual ransom paid by Christ, there are two main aspects. First, there is payment. And second, there is freedom. It is the payment part of the ransom that stresses the cost of salvation. It is the freedom part that emphasizes who we are in Christ as former slaves to sin and evil, now rescued and freed from bondage. This ransom describes the substitutionary death, the death on our behalf as our substitute of the man, Jesus Christ. This goes beyond our conventional understanding of a ransom, which involves usually the payment of cash for the freedom of a hostage. This ransom was equal to the gravity of what needed to be paid for our freedom. And that is God taking the form of man to die on the cross. Now the for whom of the equation is seen at the end of the phrase, for all, on behalf of, or for the sake of, would be fitting translations here. And all means all. This speaks of the scope or the sufficiency of the atonement. It reflects what we saw last week of God's desire for all to be saved. This doesn't mean that all will be saved. But the ransom paid was enough to cover all the sins of all men. And when it comes to living out our faith, this does two things for us. First, in our personal worship, it reminds us of how great, powerful, and loving our God is. That he would come and die as a ransom shows us his love. That this ransom could cover the whole world, past, present, and future, shows how pure and holy and powerful he was and is. In the practical working out of our faith within this context, the fact that he gave himself as a ransom for all reminds us that we are to pray for the salvation of all. To not pray for the salvation of the world, and as we saw last week, particularly of our world leaders, even those we do not like, even those who are killing our relatives, even those whom we fear. To not pray for their salvation as a believer, as one who has partaken of so great a salvation, is to disrespect, to think lightly of, to treat with contempt the death of Jesus Christ. If you are truly proud, hypothetically, of something that your son invented, that it truly could change the world, would you keep it to yourself? Wouldn't you be telling everyone, trying to get an appointment with every CEO, every president, every connection you can find to get that invention into the hands of everyone? then if you truly believe in and appreciate the ransom of Christ, wouldn't you be praying that all would partake of it? The passage says what it says. And again, we are being given instruction for church service. But as our minds long for more to be saved, 
we can easily question why are some saved and others aren't, especially given what we just read and what we saw last week. But the end of the verse reminds us that God knows what He's doing. It reminds us that He has a plan. And this reminder comes by way of the timing of Christ's death. Now we say that hindsight is 2020. And those of us living post-crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we can look back. And we can look back and answer some questions. We can look back and say, well, God's timing was so that Jesus would die at a time when Judaism was at the height of its corruption. We could say that Judaism had found a unique place in the political and religious climate of the Roman Empire. And so they still had influence. And as they waited for the Messiah, that was the prime moment to come. We could look back and say that He came at that time because the Father intended for the public display of this ransom when there was a cruel, bloody, and prolonged form of capital punishment, crucifixion that existed, done out in the open, instead of today where someone would be given the gas chamber or the electric chair and you would just hear about it, no one would see it except for a select few. Hindsight is twenty twenty. But when all is said and done, when all is studied and assumed, we know that He came when He came because God wanted this, look at the verse, testimony given at the proper time. And what this means is simply this. At the perfectly timed, decisive moment in history, in His infinitely wise and predetermined redemptive plan, that's the phrase proper time. God, in His providence, displayed this witness, that's the word testimony, to the church so that they do not exclude anyone in their prayers for salvation. I see some of you frantically writing. I'll read that again for you. <laughs> At the perfectly timed, decisive moment in history, in His infinitely wise and predetermined plan, redemptive plan rather, that's proper time, God, in His providence, displayed this witness, that's another word for testimony there, to the church so, they, so that they do not exclude anyone in their prayers for salvation. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 16. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 16. As you turn there, may I remind you that Hebrews was written to a very Jewish audience. Thus, a lot of the terminology and analogies and illustrations from Old Testament speak. Hebrews 9, 11 through 16. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. We're in verse 13 now. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. And if you believe this, you must respond appropriately. And the appropriate response is first and foremost prayer for the lost to partake of this ransom. Anything less does not reflect God's heart nor does it honor the perfectly timed plan of God and the cross of Christ. Now part of that plan is that all of this was not hidden from neither us nor the world as a whole. Christ was displayed in the most public manner and the eyewitnesses began a centuries-long program of passing on this truth from generation to generation. The fact that we have been passed this knowledge of Him serves for us this morning as another reason to pray evangelistic prayers. Point number three is the sharing of God. The sharing of God. Look at verse 7 back in 1 Timothy 2. Paul says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. If you were to stop short of the New Testament... The full plan of God is not only left unfulfilled without a Messiah, but also left unknown to the Gentiles. As a preacher and an apostle, however, Paul was one of the first to both proclaim the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, but also to tell this to the world, to the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. Now, we've talked a lot in our study of 1 Timothy about Paul's call to ministry he was among a very small circle of select few who are called to be apostles. That circle widens significantly when he calls himself a preacher and also a teacher. An apostle was one who was designated by God to help establish the church. As an apostle, Paul was given the authority of God for his ministry as well as his teaching. It is that authority that Paul is stressing here by calling himself that once again. A preacher, on the other hand, refers to the announcing of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he was an apostle of. Now, the word for preacher in the Greek means a herald, a proclaimer, a public speaker. This was someone who brought and announced news. And in the absence of modern methods of transmitting information, you relied on a person and his vocal cords. Familiar in both secular and religious senses, this would be someone who would walk through the streets of the town and into the town square and announce anything from an athletic event to a religious festival, from new tax laws to some other edict of the king. And one of the most important aspects of being a herald, listen up, one of the most important aspects of being a herald was that he accurately present the message of the one who sent him. 
The message was not his own, it was that of another. And you can see the clear reference or implications of being a herald or preacher of the Word of God. It was not Paul's message. It is not my message. It is the Word of God. And naturally, this was a fitting description of the work of an apostle. Now, we need to attach these roles of Paul to the fact that God appointed him, as he says here. He did not choose this role. When you go through the gospel accounts of those that Jesus called to be his disciples, they too were not seeking out the position. In fact, we know that they were quite unaware and frankly unworthy. We know this is definitely the case of the Apostle Paul because the timing of his actual calling occurred while he was physically on the way to inflict great pain on the existing apostles and those who followed them, the Christians, the church. Now this kind of role, not to mention, not to mention the ability and desire, comes only from God who chooses and appoints. But as we go on in the verse, we see that there's a third role that Paul says he has been commissioned to, and that is a teacher of the Gentiles. Teaching like preaching would fall under his tasks in his office of apostle. But what is unique about Paul's calling is that he was to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So much of the Bible and the revealed plan of God was centered around the Jewish people. Even Christ's ministry, you see, was focused on the Jews. And so Paul's specific call to the Gentiles, which he also mentions elsewhere in the New Testament, was a surprise to many. It was a shock to even those in the early church, which is why he prefaces with this parenthesis, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, which is a reference to the fact that he was a teacher of the Gentiles. And the fact that the most well-known and arguably most influential apostle who was called to preach and teach to the Gentiles is a final argument for the support of universal salvific prayer. This is because the inclusion of Gentiles into God's salvation plan is proof that He desires all to be saved, which in turn makes us obligated to pray for everyone. And very quickly, Paul teaches the Gentiles he says there, in faith and truth, not political freedom from Rome, not social progress, not even theological debate, faith and truth, the gospel. Now as he closes off his final instruction on public prayer, he brings it back to this very topic with specific instruction, and that brings us to our final point. This morning we are looking at four reasons to pray evangelistic prayers. We've seen the singularity of God, also the salvation and sharing of God. Finally, in verse 8, the sanctification of God. The sanctification of God. The process by which He makes men holy. Sanctification. Look at verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Having told us of the importance of evangelistic prayer in light of the fact that there is only one way to the one God, Paul now tells Timothy that the church must respond with action. And that action 
in corporate worship is very specific. He begins by saying that it is the men who are to pray in service. We know that he is talking about men as in the gender because of the Greek word he uses that is a different word than the one he has been using thus far in this passage. For example, when he says to pray for all men in verse 1, and that there is one mediator between God and men in verse 5 that we just saw, he uses the Greek word, and I mention this only because it will sound familiar to you, the Greek word anthropos. This refers to all of mankind, all of human beings, all of humanity. It's the root from where we get anthropology. Why? Not I.E. The science, not the store. The study of humanity as a whole, male and female. This is the word also that he uses in verse 5 in the phrase, the man Christ Jesus, to emphasize not that he is male, but that he took on the form of humanity. The word Paul uses here in verse 8 is a different Greek word that specifically refers to the male gender. Additionally, the context tells us that he is now distinguishing the proper roles and responsibilities of males and females within the church as clearly evidenced in the following verses that we will unpack next month, our Q&A being next Sunday. When it comes to these instructions, keep in mind again that Paul is giving instruction for a worship service, a church service. So, he is not saying that only men are to pray, period. All Christians are, to command, are commanded to pray. He is also not saying that women are not allowed to pray during the church service in their own hearts. What he is saying is that when it comes to those who are leading the church service and stand in front, and specifically here leading the congregation in prayer, it is to be men. And we know that he is talking about a church service because the phrase he uses here, every place, is used elsewhere by Paul in the New Testament to refer to the local gathering of the congregation. So the English can be a bit misleading, but it means wherever you are meeting as a church. This is again further clarified when we look at the context. This is why, very practically, in our service, we have a rotation of men who pray, whether to start the service or end the service for, or for our church, the time of Scripture reading and prayer. This is also why when our singing is led by our, our choir, which is led by a very skilled and capable woman, she insists that she does not end the time of singing with prayer, but has one of the men in the choir do it. This is nothing new. We are all familiar with the clear limitations of certain church functions as well as church offices to men. Although this is to be followed, this is not Paul's main point. What we will see now, as well as next month when we talk about women in a church service, is that Paul's main concern is godliness. Let's take a look at how he describes how the men are to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. In the Scriptures, 
the hands symbolize the believer's actions, daily life and activity. This is a fitting representation of this since most of what we do on the daily is with our hands. You've heard this in phrases such as good, God looks at the heart and the hands. Or in churches you've visited where they pass around an offering plate, they say prepare your heart and your hands. In other words, God looks at your inner thought life, your attitude, your motives, but as we saw very clearly in James, he also looks at how those play out in external activity and speech. That being said... We know that in the early church, there was a carryover from the Jewish synagogues so that, as they did in the synagogues, Christian men would pray physically with their hands outstretched, palms facing heaven. You have perhaps seen Orthodox Jews today praying in this fashion. The key here, however, is the word holy. What does it mean to have physical, holy hands? Well, we know in rabbinic teaching, it was certain types of ways that you would wash your hands before going into the synagogue or before offering a sacrifice. But we understand that it is more than that. It is a heart issue. What this tells us is that it is more than just going through the motions and making sure your physical body is in some sort of correct position. In fact, I'm a huge proponent of kneeling when we pray. But in the scriptures, you have people standing, you have people lying down. It's about the heart. Holiness in general, not just prayer, is a matter of the heart. So what we know from this is that holy hands is referring to the inner and outer holiness of the one praying. And we know that above all else, same standard, higher accountability, holiness is especially called for in leadership. And this is something that we know that the Jews had lost by this time. By the time Jesus came, the whole system had become so corrupt that some of the most powerful, uh, powerful Jews of the day were the most deceived and deceitful. What we must learn from them is that the person who is up front praying in a church service for our church service is not to be chosen merely based on eloquence or appearance, education, age, or even consistency in attendance. To be holy means to live and think in a way that is in accordance with God's revealed will for our lives. Holiness is the character of one who is pure and pious in the eyes of God. It is someone who has not given in to the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, 1 John 2.16. They are to be holy. As a side note, this is one of the reasons I so appreciate our church. We are getting bigger in numbers, but we are family. As someone just recently coming from a difficult church situation where their church actually had to shut down, asked me some very good, challenging, and wise questions. And one of his questions is being a fairly young in the scope of things, maybe not so if you look at recent years, but in the broader scope of the American church, at 12 years old, a very young church plan, he said, 
Pastor Roger, if you didn't show up on a Sunday, do you trust the church to keep going and function logistically? And my answer ultimately was yes. I am thankful that we are so committed and we have family and we know each other so well that if someone was to emcee our service and pray in front of everyone and pulled me aside and said, I am just struggling with this sin that I can't get past. I do not think I should lead the congregation in prayer today. There are half a dozen other men I could say, thank you for that. Let me ask so-and-so to come and pray. We are not a church, as some churches you have visited, where it doesn't matter what's going on in their hearts because the show must go on. They expected that elder who is the most eloquent to pray today and no matter what he's doing, no matter what he said to his wife, no matter what's going on in his life and his heart, no matter how wicked, the show must go on. He's the one who's praying. He's the best at it. The other guy didn't dress up today. I'm thankful that we're not stuck in that rut And I pray that we never will be. And I trust that we never will be because we are adhering to what is here. But how do we ensure that these guys, myself included, are holy when they approach the altar, in essence, before the people of God? Well, frankly, it's largely up to the one praying to make sure that he is holy before the Lord such that he will choose not to pray or even, at least temporarily, step down from any given leadership position until he is able to get his life right. I hope that happens. Because it shows that our leadership are men of integrity. And if and when that happens... I trust all of you not to assume, not to gossip, but to biblically fellowship and love and encourage. But aside from holiness in general, back in our passage, there are two specific aspects of holiness that Paul mentions he desires of those who pray publicly, and that is without wrath and without dissension. Wrath is that internal passion or anger that comes out in outbursts of uncontrolled temper. In order to pray properly as a representative of the church and for the salvation of the lost in this context, there must first be a repentance of any existing wrath. And this starts with forgiving the person that has provoked the anger. The need for Christians in general to put put away wrath is very clear. Listen to Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. We looked at this in men's group on Thursday. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Rather be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Then there's Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. So, as those who have been chosen of God... Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone. 
Just again, as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And until this is done, that individual should not be in front of the church. Again, this is instruction for worship service. This does not mean if you are struggling with wrath and anger that you are not to pray. Quite the opposite. In your own life, if this is a struggle for you, you should be praying about this quite a bit and about this particular sin. And if you think in your own life it is too hard to forgive in order to deal with that anger, then we can look not just to the commands of Christ, but His example on the cross. Father, burn them. No, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Remember Stephen? We talked about a few weeks ago being stoned, rocks thrown at him until he died as he was being stoned to death, as he is dodging giant rocks, breaking open his skin and fracturing his skull, he says this in Acts 7, verse 60, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Those were his dying words. Having said this, he fell asleep. That means he died. What would you say? Tell my wife I love her. Tell my kids I love them. I have some money put away at this bank. <laughs> he was concerned about forgiving and their forgiveness. It is possible no matter what situation you are in. Now back in our text, aside from wrath, Paul also forbids dissension in public prayer. In general, dissension means a thought or opinion, but more specifically, it means doubting or disputing or arguing, which is why the ESV translate this, translates this rather quarreling. It's in the same family of sins as wrath. Dissension means that you are not to pray up front if you are actively fighting with another person, specifically a Christian. And you are definitely not to come up front and use the words, the context, content of your prayer to further your argument or what we call bully pulpit those in the congregation. In other words, using your words up here spoken publicly as a passive-aggressive veiled attack on other people who are listening. Ultimately, with all these descriptions, holy hands without wrath and dissension, Paul is emphasizing the importance of the heart of the servant regardless of how well he does his job externally. And we will see these same principles explained for women in the coming weeks when he explains how women are to behave in the church. Before the praying man, it is hypocritical, it is blasphemous to pray to God for the congregation unless the heart is free from anger and ill will. Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus saying, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Within the context of marriage, Peter says that it is the lack 
of being understanding and honoring the wife that causes the husband's prayers to be hindered. 1 Peter 3.7. In the same way, Paul is saying that there is no place for a person to stand up and pray before the church if there is not a forgiveness, understanding, understanding, and honoring of others. And I do want to quickly point out that all of what we've seen in verse 8 hinges on Paul saying, I want or I desire in verse 8, the beginning. This means to will or to purpose and shows us that Paul is using his full authority as, a, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a command. Now this is very clearly instruction for the church service. But as much as we see some sort of limitation on who can do what on a Sunday morning, there's a side point that becomes glaringly clear that is found throughout the New Testament. And if I can put it bluntly, it is this. Whether in leadership or not, men, step up. Get your act together. Be holy. Be godly. This is what God desires of you. This is what the church needs from you. If God has so ordered the church, not to mention the home, for men to be up front and in leadership, then we need to be the holy and humble people that God desires of His leaders. Men, be godly. It doesn't matter if you never step forth up here in front of a congregation or any congregation. You have influence. And if you're married, you have leadership responsibilities. If you have children, you have leadership responsibilities. If anyone at your work needs to ask your permission, you have biblical leadership responsibilities. Single men, I will tell you this. Godly women are attracted to godliness. Men, step up. And when you do, excel still more. But, more to the point, in light of the salvific plan of God, we must be people who pray for the salvation of all men in our public worship. And these prayers are to be done by men who exhibit holy and peaceful lives. Four reasons to pray evangelistic prayers. The singularity of God, there's only one God and one way. The salvation of God, Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom for all. The sharing of God, Paul did it to those. We will see that Paul entrusts Timothy to teach other faithful men and down through the ages now to us. And fourthly, the sanctification of God. The importance of this is seen in the, in the importance of the holiness of those who do so. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you first and foremost thankful that we are yours. Not because of anything we have done, but because you have called us, you have redeemed us, you sent your Son to deal with unbearable pain, emotional and physical, for our sake. Pain never experienced before as eternal God. We pray that we would be a church where our leaders are holy, at least holy enough to admit when they're not holy enough. And I pray, Father, that we would be a church a people that pray in light of and according to your will and desire for the world, world that is the salvation of all men. We do pray for our family members, our friends, our co-workers. We pray for those in this congregation this morning that are not saved, that you would save them, whether they think they're saved or they know they are not we pray for our president, Joe Biden. We pray that he would rule in such a way that there would be peace for Christians, but most importantly, we pray that you would save him. We pray that his attendance at church would not me merely be a publicity stunt, but that he would be taught the true words of Jesus Christ. We pray for his wife's salvation. We pray for Vice President Harris's salvation. We pray for the salvation of Vladimir Putin. We pray for the salvation of his leaders. We pray for the leaders of Hamas, that you would save them, Lord. Show them that Allah, the Allah they worship is a false god. Muhammad was a deceiver. Show them that Jesus Christ was not just a prophet or a good man. He is the Savior. And may the whole Islamic world Turn to him. We pray for the leaders of Ukraine. We pray for the leaders of China and Israel, that you would save them and they would rule in a way that Christians can live in peace and dignity or at least start to do so. We pray all of these things in your name.